happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 190, just 10 episodes short of the dose, the, the dose centennials, the two centennials for September the 9th, 2020. My name is Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City, where we do not have fires raging or, you know, floods or all kinds of uh, crazy things happening. But we have had a lovely drop in the weather and uh, I think it's in getting into the 50s. But I understand, you know, it may be less than freezing uh, sometime in the near future where my compadre in podcast talk is hailing from. So Dr. Jason Neifer, ladies and gentlemen, hailing from Missoula, Montana, where the view is almost that good right outside his window, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, it's not too bad. It's a little hazy out there. We're getting some smoke from the uh, West Coast fires, and my understanding is that those fires are pretty hardcore. I have family in Oregon that sent pictures last night of blood red skies, which uh, it's it's pretty intense. But luckily, the fires have died down just ever ever a little bit in Montana. We had a huge uh, fire in Bozeman, Montana, over the weekend, but uh, that's died down because of some rain. But otherwise, the weather here has been actually very nice and cool. So hopefully, it stays that way. Um, but I don't just sit around talking about the weather all day. I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus here in Missoula, Montana. Um, but this this hour is not about you and it's not about me. It is about EdTech News. And we have quite a few articles to talk about tonight. But Wes, what is the EdTech situation really all about? Well, Jason, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, we are a weekly podcast on Wednesday evenings that attempts to recap some of the technology news of the past week or so and pass that through an educational lens. We also will be prone to rant and talk about things that we are passionate about from time to time. So we'll prepare you for that, but we will attempt to share links as we go along into our live stream, which is going to both Facebook and to YouTube. Um, the uh, chat is open, so if you happen to be here live, we would love to hear from you and find out where you're from. Sometimes we have folks from not only Arizona, but uh, Honduras and, uh, you know, Ohio and other places. Um, you can check out all the links that we have for our show on edtechsr.com slash links. And we almost always fail to cover all of those links. So you can check those out. We will obviously have some geeks of the week. Last week, I think people were, were amazed and loved. Jason, I think, had three geeks of the week, or maybe that was two weeks ago. But anyway, It was last week. It feels it like several weeks ago, but yes, it was indeed last week. That's right. So where would you like to go first tonight, Dr. Neifer? Well, um, there. let's go ahead and, and, and do the Apple news. There's one article I absolutely want to get to tonight that I think might spark an interesting discussion, but there is a lot of interesting ongoing Apple news. I want to start with an article. Um, so I have to say, I'm still part of the Apple faithful a little bit in that I like watching it, and I, and I kind of like the theatrics of being an Apple consumer, right? But it was really funny because apparently there was supposed to be a, a new watches introduced yesterday, and the Super Apple... Apple fans were waiting with bated breath that the new watches were coming. And instead, Apple said, no, we're going to have an event next week. So on September 15th, there's going to be an Apple event. And just watching the hand-wringing from the Apple media talk about this, I've read that it's either going to be um, just watches or it's going to be watches and iPads or it's going to be watches and iPads and the new iPhone. And then the will it be the iPhone, will it be the iPad crowd is debating because there's the there's likely a new chip coming out, the A15, I think it is. Maybe it's the A16. Um, A15, I think it is, that... Uh, um, has, uh, that should be, you know, beautiful, vast new chip. Apple, uh, bringing that same technology later this year to probably an iMac and a lightweight, uh, MacBook, which is super exciting. Um, but, you know, that, that's certainly, uh, coming in the relatively near future, but there will be this event next week. And I gotta say, um, because I feel duly obligated to mention this every time we talk about the Apple Watch, really, if anything was going to be bring, bring me back to the Apple architecture, it's the watch because they're doing so many cool and innovative things on that. And I'll mention something that I'm sure I've said at least three or four times before on, on our broadcast. Um, 
I don't know a single person that uh, started with 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 Wear OS. That's the the Android uh, operating system for wearables that is still wearing that. Except for me, I still wear a daily a Wear OS device. Whereas almost every single person that I know that jumped onto Apple Watches is still wearing their Apple Watch um, on a regular basis. And it that that's something, right? That that is an extraordinary uh, uh, thing. I think that 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 Apple can rely upon. So Wes, I know that. That you do like to buy uh, uh, either the latest and greatest Apple stuff, or you are also masterful at finding good bargains on one or two generation old Apple stuff. But is there anything that Apple could announce next week that would, you know, tempt your your your, your pocketbook a bit? No, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, I'm very happy with where we're at. You know, lately we have been, you know, the used Apple family. So yeah. I just, I'm sporting the, the Generation 3 watch, which I was able to pick up for about, well, it was a little over $200. But with Generation 6 coming out, I mean, this this Gen, th- this Gen 3 is a fantastic watch. So, you know, the good news is that watch is going to be even cheaper on Swappa. Uh, you've been able to get that until, I don't know, maybe, Sometime in the probably the last three months or something, I think in June we we actually bought one new um, at the Apple Store for our daughter, um, and it was it was selling at that time from Apple at the same price that it had been selling for Swappa. So I'm I'm glad glad to see, of course, the march of technology you know moving forward. Um, but I am very pleased with where I'm at with my technology at, at uh, school. Very thankful to be able to you know, have a, have a great iPad, have a great uh, MacBook Pro. Um, I think that the continued advance of Apple's chip technology and the integration in, into their systems is going to be good for the long term, and it's going to be exciting to see, and we're probably going to be, you know, seeing more of a merger of, of devices in terms of function and, and touch and things like that. But, yeah, not, not going to be um, swayed at this point. But sounds like you might be on the edge, Jason, and, and uh, if you, you know, are – are stunned on the 15th. We'll just, uh, we, we, shoot, we could even have a, ha- a special show if we needed to. If you, <laughs> you feel so moved, you know. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, we'll see. I, I, the health features on the Apple Watch are just unparalleled and, and, and exist nowhere in the ecosystem of, of Android Wear. And they haven't even been really releasing updated chips in that arena, too. There are ones that are available, but they don't make any new watches. And I have to say, my favorite uh, Android Wear watch right now is this was one of the original versions released in 2014 and I love it. It's still got a day's worth of battery and um, I actually I like the square form factor. This was made fun of when it was first released by um, I think this is an Asus watch um, and yet I like that form factor quite a bit. So yeah, we'll see. Um, but you know, with the amount of health stuff available there, I am extremely health conscious. I use a lot of tech. Uh, to help monitor my health and my uh, uh, specific uh, along with overall uh, health, and that's tempting. So now that said, speaking of the Apple Watch, you have an article about something new on the Apple Watch. I do. Uh, this is from 9to5Google, which they also have, of course, 9to5Mac, uh, but 9to5Google uh, reports that Google Maps is returning to the Apple Watch, and while that certainly is probably just more from a consumer interest standpoint, yay, that's exciting, Um it's also, I, th- I would think, a good sign of some cooperation between Apple and Google. Um, you know, if you're familiar, there has been these wars where, you know, for a while, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's been difficult to, you know, be a full Google uh, user on iOS devices. And so with some of the changes they've made to the operating system, you can now, um, I'm pretty sure, make your Gmail app your default mail app instead of having to default to Apple's. And, you know, Apple was truly really wanted everybody to switch over to their maps. I, we had some bad experiences years ago and just completely abandoned it. I deleted it off of my phone and I never want to use Apple Maps again. So I'm glad to see that. Um, the other thing, in, in addition to the watch integration that we continue to enjoy a lot, I don't have an article about this, but it's related to Google Maps, is the CarPlay. And so if you have a CarPlay compatible system, it is really wonderful because it really acts as a display for your phone. And so if you are plugging a newer phone in, you have newer CarPlay or you've updated your, your operating system. But I've also been pleased to, to I kind of accidentally learn that you can use Siri to get directions in Apple Maps when you're, or sorry, in Google Maps when you're 
in your car on on CarPlay. Um, also, I'm now a big Spotify fan, so I can play music and have it play from Spotify, you know, using Siri. So I think it's good to see this kind of of interoperability. Um, I don't think it's it's beneficial for us as consumers, whether um, we look at ourselves from the educational hat or just, you know, citizens using our devices to have Apple and Google not cooperating. So I think that is a, a positive thing. And maybe we'll see some more announcements along those lines. Who knows um, for the for the Apple announcements. One other Apple article I have. This is really an excellent one. This is Ars Technica from, um, I think, yesterday on uh, the, the 8th of September. Apple says Epic's Fortnite payment scheme is theft, period. Uh, we talked about this on the show last week. Epic, who is the creator of Fortnite, which along with Roblox are absolutely the most, that's you know the most popular games that my fifth and sixth graders play. I, I hear about Roblox and or Fortnite pretty much every single day as kids are talking about things. Um, this is a well, well, what this article does is it quotes the actual um, uh, litigation and, and what the filings have said. And so uh, some of the quotations in here, um, <laughs> Apple says, the App Store is not a public utility. Epic has no right to, quote, reap all the benefits Apple and the App Store provide without having to pay a penny. Uh, they reveal that in the you know last 11 years, since 2008, uh, Epic has earned over $600 million from App Store sales in that period. The fact that Epic no longer accepts that deal, does not provide cover for Epic to breach binding contracts, dupe a longtime business partner, pocket commissions that rightfully belong to Apple, and then ask this court to take a judicial sledgehammer to one of the 21st century's most innovative business platforms simply because it does not maximize Epic's revenues. The other thing they go on to say is that on the Android store, um, Epic, well, the the ecosystem failed to keep malware out. And so it, it, they cite Epic's... Um, Failure, it says, when Epic started distributing Android version of Fortnite independently in 2018, Apple writes that immediately sites appeared that not only advertised Android Fortnite, but also distributed malware in the game. Apple also cites security vulnerabilities in that independently distributed Android version as evidence that its iOS protections are necessary. So this article kind of gets to the heart of a big Android versus Apple ecosystem and the argument of whether it should be more open and free or whether, you know, consumers, schools, you know, folks benefit from that. So, Jason, any thoughts uh, on that in terms of comparing the app ecosystems and, you know, benefits or, or drawbacks to, to either one? Sure. Well, I mean, as I mentioned last week uh, when we uh, started, maybe it's two weeks ago when we started on this topic, is that I have a hard time figuring out which which to, to cheer for here. Because I think this both have really good points, right? Like Apple has a good point that, and in the way they argued that there, I think they, they argued that brilliantly, that the bottom line is, is that, you know, we tightly control our ecosystem. There needs to be a price for that. And that if you want access to our customers, you should pay something for that. But at the same time, at 30%, it seems awfully stiff for what you're getting out of it as an app developer, right? And that all that reserves, in my mind, then reserves app development really then to large uh, uh, companies that can afford to invest in mega games for the output of 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 getting that that you know seventy percent back. Um, it is interesting that Apple did take a swipe at the Android ecosystem. Uh, because it, it is a lot more chaotic, chaotic on Android. There's a much bigger problem on Android than there is on iOS of copycat apps, people that take the source code of commercial apps, change one or two things about it, strip out any sort of digital rights management, and then resell that app or give it away with, with heavy advertising. And I've noticed that uh, probably a, a hundred individual times since I moved to the Android ecosystem. I guess I did that in 2013. So, um, yeah, I, I it's hard to know who to fight for here, but at the same time, I mean, I, I think Apple has a good argument that we've built this extraordinary platform for developers to meet arguably higher end customers than the larger technological ecosphere. And, you know, there should be a price for that. And, um, you know, if you want to be a mobile gaming giant, then you might have to pay the piper a little bit here. 
And I'm no legal expert, but my reading of this is that what Epic is is really putting their uh, putting their chips on is really the tech correction, the idea that government, uh, the courts are going to step in to try and curb monopoly power that, you know, arguably Apple has inside their ecosystem. Um, and, you know, we're, we're seeing the threat of regulation and, and intervention on multiple fronts when it comes to tech companies. So it's going to be interesting to see, but yeah, given, I think the very persuasive way, that's why I like that article so well, or that's why I liked it so much. I, you know, the, the language that they used in the filing, you know, was very strong and seemed very persuasive. So it would be a major reversal of, um, of fortunes for Apple. If, if they would lose this, it, it would seem like, you know, they're going to stand on solid ground, but, uh, you know, will the court respond? I don't know. It, se- it would seem more likely, even though it's really hard to get Congress to act, that Congress, you know, might be more likely to move in the political wind rather, rather than the courts. Um, so interesting to see this. And this is also something that's impacted my kids, right? So the Fortnite players that I have, you know, they were, they, my, my fifth graders were telling me, you know, yeah, if you have a Mac, you can't, you know, you can't get this update. You can't get this latest version. And it was like, they, they were up on that. They knew what was going on with this fight. So um, it's interesting. There's some intersections and in, with politics and legal there, you know, the, the threats about TikTok and whether or not the uh, U.S. government, in fact, that, that deadline's coming up on the 15th. I don't know if I have a, uh, We've got any articles about that today, but yeah, will will TikTok be uh, be banned in, in the United States? We do have some China articles that we can get to a little bit later. So interesting times. Okay, let's go ahead and do the Android Google stuff, and then I'm going to ask if we can move towards uh, a Firefox article from a couple weeks ago. So uh, first and foremost, uh, hallelujah, Android 11 is released. The latest Android operating system is out. Uh, it did appear in more than just Pixel phones this time. There was a handful of other um, uh, third-party manufacturer phones that also end up with Android 11. And so I would refer folks to, there's a really great article on The Verge that goes through kind of the major updates. Um, I do own a Pixel 3a. It's not my daily driver right now. It's it's It kind of rotates uh, as my backup phone with uh, a Moto G Power phone that has got a big old battery pack on it, which is why I love it. I did run betas of uh, Android 11 early on um, earlier this summer, and I liked it. It was a nice, solid platform. But the one of the reasons why I like Android 11, if you happen to be someone that either gets this or can get it relatively soon, is that it did integrate a lot of cool smart home stuff into it. And so as an example of this, when you press and held down on the power button, that would bring up the power button interface asking you if you want to shut off or reset your phone. It also brought up a, a panel on the bottom of the phone that allowed you to turn on and off and control smart home devices. And I thought that was a very clever and smart way to integrate that into the Android ecosystem. But Android 11 is here. Um, and, uh, for the Android faithful that are, is using a Pixel device, and I think there's a, a Samsung device or two and, and some other uh, major manufacturers, they are also, uh, releasing Android 11 today. And then Wes, you had an article about something that I know impacts us both. Yeah, uh, this is an article about Google Wi-Fi. So uh, Jason and I are both users of what is now called Nest Wi-Fi, the Google Wi-Fi um, home system. And the article from Chrome Unboxed says that uh, basically they're transitioning away from a separate app and it's being integrated into the home app. This is from Chrome Unboxed on September 7th. So I actually did that yesterday, this morning, uh, opened up the Google Home app, and then there's a little tab at the top, and it had the option to import your settings. I guess there may be some advanced things that you can't do, and you can still run the Google Wi-Fi app, but, you know, what's remarkable about this, for for me, it really shows the integration or the, I don't know, the the all-in we have for for Google uh, in terms of smart speakers, in terms of compatible devices, because we've got a number of, uh, of smart plugs and, and switches. And, uh, so it, uh, has, you know, has the same function, but, um, continue to use the prioritization. So, you know, giving my wife last night on a zoom call, she had priority, you know, doing that now, um, love that integration. So just kind of cool to see those things coming together. And, uh, I, I think I actually, I don't know if I'll get to write the blog post tonight, but, Man, this, this got me looking at some more things in terms of function because you organize your house with room names and you can put these different devices in there. 
And you can have fun with if this, then that, uh, depending on how you have that integrated when you want, you know, lights to come on at sunrise or sunset and things like that. And man, I got into some of the Google photos stuff and the, the, you know, oh, this is beyond the article, but you know, we, we now have an album of almost 3,500 pictures uh, going back to like 2007 of our family. And the facial recognition is just scarily good. And anyway, it's, these are all examples of where I really am happy being a part of the, of the Google ecosystem. Um, I don't have a desire to pay the top dollar for Apple smart speaker, you know, and, and I know you, Jason, continue to have Alexa, and I shouldn't have said her name, uh, Madame A's, um, you know, in, in your house as well. But, um, are you any more in the Google camp for home automation and that kind of thing than the, the Amazon camp, or are you still for, firmly have both, you know, feet in both camps? Yeah, it's 50-50 for me, and in fact, I have both a Madame A device and a Google device sitting on my desk right now in my evolving home office, and part of it's because I I think twice in the last six months, someone sent me a free Google Home with a little mini speaker, um, and, you know, I didn't really need it uh, in most cases, so I was able to put it on, uh, you know, on a desk, and and, and, I, and I like them both. I mean, I, you know, I, it's interesting, Wes, hearing you talking about kind of digging deep into the architectures and doing some cool, nerdy stuff with it. I've really, I've done a little bit of that. Like I, I have some lights and stuff hooked up that I, I like a lot, but it's not really where I'm at yet with that. And, you know, to be honest, if you're just dabbling it now and I'm kind of like, yeah, that's interesting, but I just, you know, I'm not sure if the smart home captured the imagination in the way that manufacturers hoped it would. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have really interesting things set up in, in my home, in my office. I can turn all my lights on and off um, in my office with that. I, I have smart light bulbs. Um, I have uh, most of the equipment in my office, except for the actual desktop PCs on a timer now and turns off at 10 o'clock at night for power savings purposes. Uh, so that is, is, is an interesting thing for me. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, that's, that, that's about my extent in it. That said, I think it's great that Google's trying to find like a home for a home at home for all your home stuff. And I think that's a, a good movement for our good friends at Google. Peggy in the chat room is commenting that she uh, does not have a smart home. So she's, uh, you know, maybe doesn't have a use for that. Hey, all you need to do is, is order a plug. So you don't have to, you know, buy a new house, move into a house that is a quote unquote smart home. Um, you know, I think I actually started with our Christmas tree one year, you know, because I would, I have, yeah. we have the old school timers that, you know, have these dials and stuff like that. You know, you go out of town, you want lights on, you know, at night and shutting off. But it's, uh, you know, kind of cool to be able to have things, um, you know, function in, in another way. So it's, it, we, we had that on a timer and, you know, here in my, my office, I've got a, uh, long, you know, fluorescent light that gives a little bit better, um, better lighting for video conferencing. And, um, I, I, when we were doing remote learning, I had that coming on and off on a regular basis, uh, just so it was, was on when I came to sit down in the morning. Uh, but I, now I just, you know, control that with my voice. So yeah, I think it is still a gee whiz sort of thing and, and everybody's not doing it, but it's totally this thing where the future is, is here. It's just not uh, evenly distributed because, you know, it's, it's like living in Harry Potter land, right? We are, I, I feel like I am casting spells. My wife the other day, cause you have to, you name your things, you know, however you want. I made a new speaker group cause I, you know, moved one of my speakers and I, you can play, you know, podcasts or you can play music and, and have it simultaneously playing on these different speakers, but you have to get your words just right. So we have lots of Lord of the Rings names for, you know, speaker groups and, uh, you know, different things that we have in our house. And then you just, you know, if you don't say that name correctly, then it's not going to, it's not going to play, but yeah, it's definitely, uh, not a, not a mainstream thing. And, uh, you know, if you've seen Mr. Robot, you, Think about the fact that, you know, homes can be hacked and those are, you know, those kinds of events are not, and that's mainstream either. But the more we depend upon the, um, you know, the, the, the cloud, and we've, we had some internet outages, uh, actually a whole series of them, you know, a few weeks ago. And boy, that is a real bummer, uh, especially if you're going to do, you know, things like locks on doors and, and things like that. So, uh, you've got backups that you can go to. But you you realize your dependency to those kinds of things when you're like, wow, what what are we going to watch tonight? Uh, the internet's down, and uh, you know we we cut the cable like eight years ago. So, okay, great. So 
Wes, I've been looking forward to talking about this to you for two weeks, but I want to give us enough time to do it. But um, there's been a lot of interesting Firefox news in the last month. And the news is interesting, but I guess I have a broader question I want to ask. So this is from ZDNet on August 14th. It talks about Firefox being at risk long-term financially. And they recently did ink a deal with Google to keep Google as the main search engine. And media reports vary on this. Some of them say it could net $500 million a year. Other people say that's up to $500 million a year. But the market share of, of, of Mozilla Firefox keeps, you know, decreasing ever so subtly month over month, year over year. And um, I, I I do think it's interesting that if Firefox is a danger with $500 million a year, I do wonder what they're spending their money on, right? So that that's certainly part of it. But I guess the, the question I would ask here, well, first, Wes, do you use Firefox in any sort of regularity at all? No, I, I have it on my devices. Um, every once in a while, I will be using a different browser uh, on my phone as well as on my computer. But it's it's very rare. I'm very rare. Um, I am pretty much living in Chrome all the time. It's nice to have an option because sometimes you can have glitchy things happen. And a lot of times that's extension related and you need to, you know, power wash your, your Chrome browser and disable your extensions. You're usually good. Uh, we still, um, when I was IT director, were, you know, pushing out Firefox. We have a number of Firefox users because folks, you know, you get baby duck syndrome and you get imprinted with whatever that technology is. And that's what you want to stick with. So people have their bookmarks and those kinds of things you know, over in Firefox. So we would continue to support both. Um, I am a big advocate for open source for sure. And, and, you know, hopefully want to be remaining aware of, you know, dangers of corporatization and things like that when it comes to, to browsers and to software. But I am not a regular Firefox user. I'm interested to see the competition. I think that's probably been what's so positive, you know, as far as speed, because for a while, you know, Chrome was just rocket fast compared to everything else. And then, you know, Firefox and uh, Renewed and, and Safari. So it's this, you know, race between these browsers. And, you know, I don't know how many people are, are continually testing that to see, you know, right. if they need to be switching. Uh, but you're a pretty committed Firefox user or have been, um, I, in the past, right? And, and, and I've, I've really been pretty much a hundred percent on Chrome since it was released in what was it, 2008 when Chrome first came out. And I think I had the beta installed for a while before it was even uh, a thing when it was called something else in, 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 uh, uh, its beta mode. But, the bottom line is that I guess the question I feel like I need to ask is that do we need to have multiple browser universes anymore, right? And if you think about it, so many things have moved to the Chrome architecture. Obviously, Chrome itself is is, is based on the Chromium architecture, the open source project behind uh, Google Chrome. Uh, Microsoft Edge is now uh, built on top of Chromium. Uh, uh, Opera, which for the long time was kind of the... I don't even know how to say this. It wasn't like the nerds web browser because it, it really wasn't. Uh, it, it was for some folks, but it's kind of like a lot of people that were like, you know, I'm, I'm just, I want this other one because I don't want to be, I was a Chrome or an Opera user for a while, I must say. Um, and, and I think it was both, uh, Firefox and then ultimately Chrome that pulled me away from, from Opera. But, um, are we in a world anymore that needs multiple web architectures, right? Because if we can center all on one, I think there's an argument to be made that that would make web development easier because if the uh, there is a browser, right? And yes, it's an open source project owned by Google, but still, if there's a, a browser that is underneath all browsers, one could theoretically argue that it makes web development a lot easier because you could just develop towards the engine that backs Chrome, the engine that backs Edge, the engine that backs Opera. So, Wes, I know you have a couple good arguments uh, for this, but your thoughts on that, sir? Well, you know, the web needs to remain open. And I don't, and even though I do love Google a lot and, you know, think that generally, um, even though they took don't, you know, do no evil or whatever out of their, out of their official slogan, I mean, I've, um, you know, been very happy as a Google user and, you know, drank the Google Kool-Aid and, and I'm just a, just a big fan, but they are a company and they are a, a for-profit company and 
the web should not be controlled by a single company. So whether that would be Microsoft back in the day when, you know, things were, were a lot different, whether we talk about Amazon and, and their dominance. Uh, I mean, we have a long tradition in the United States of America uh, of antitrust legislation and consumer protection uh, laws and, you know, being wary of monopoly power. And so I hope that Firefox is going to stay alive. I hope that uh, the competing web kit, right, that Safari is based on is going to continue to um, thrive. I, I think it's very, I think it's, competition is very beneficial. We've talked about it just personally about, you know, T-Mobile versus Verizon versus AT&T. Um, you know, the, the nature of a lot of economics is towards consolidation and we have network effects and it makes it difficult for new folks to, you know, enter the scene in different kinds of mature economies. But I, I really believe in the open web. I believe that it, it really, uh, honestly shouldn't be controlled by a single, not only company, but also by government. And when we get to some of these China articles, we can talk a little bit about some of that. So I, uh, I hope, I hope Firefox lives on. And as do I, right? I'm the same as you, Wes. I keep it in my uh, installed on my desktop. In fact, I even install the Linux version when I uh, uh, use a Chromebook because there are times when just opening up another browser is a really, really big deal. One thing that is really interesting to me, though, and, and I don't know if this is my influence or what the deal is, that I've noticed that the um, older folks in my life, and I'm talking specifically of my mom and dad and my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, they're all dedicated Firefox users. And that's so weird to me because like, I guess I would have assumed, I just, I don't know if it, how common that is, but like, I keep telling them that you'd be better off in Chrome and they always just use a Firefox. And in fact, when they get, you know, new Windows laptops, it's not that they're using Internet Explorer, right? And maybe it's because, you know, Internet Explorer was just that terrible, right? But the bottom line is, is they're always like, well, I want Firefox on here. And I'm like, how do you even know what Firefox is because they're not that tech savvy as a crew, and yet you can you know pry away from uh, 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 Firefox from their cold dead hands. So interesting. Well, one other thought I have related to this is that you know the Mozilla Foundation, which is the the organization that is uh, promoting Firefox and development, and you know I'm receiving the money that that Google is giving for advertising. I mean, they were doing some really interesting web projects. And Alan Levine, who is CogDog on Twitter and is just an amazing creative soul and educator, um, I think is probably the person via his blog and Twitter that made me aware of some of those kinds of projects. And my perception is that those those got discontinued. And I don't know that they're continuing to do that kind of advocacy. So if anybody is aware of, and I got, obviously I could Google this too, um, you know, what's going on with the Mozilla Foundation in terms of, of their software projects and stuff like that, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you, Jason. I know a number of older folks that really do love Firefox. And it's one of those things that I, I use the term baby duck syndrome. That is really a thing yeah. in Wikipedia. You can look it up. Um, I, I think that, that they've been imprinted with that particular browser. They're familiar with it. And, you know, if people are invested in old school bookmarks that are syncing, you know, in a particular browser, I mean, yes, you can go import those right over. But anyway, people don't don't a lot of times, especially as they get older, you know, want to have that kind of a change. So perhaps that'll be a generational thing. I wonder if, if young people at all have any kind of browser uh, loyalty. Um, I, I would tend, in fact, I, that's an interesting question. I don't know where uh, my kids are with, with their browsers. I'll have to find out. So I'm, I would just assume that they're into Chrome, but maybe not. Yeah. Although it's funny you should mention that because, you know, I do help run a help desk uh, to serve the thousands of students that we serve every year. And I do a little less, a little less of this than I used to because of my changing role in the organization. But I would say it probably is 80-20 um, Chrome. And once in a while, when we suggest Firefox as an alternative, it's not quite pushback. It's just that, like, what are you talking about? Like, why would I do that? Why would I install that? And then I will say that a uh, 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 more serious number of Mac users than I would have guessed use Safari. Um, and I know how popular that is as well. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, why don't we talk a couple China articles here? Uh, this sure. one just blew my mind, but you know, it, it probably shouldn't come as a complete shock. And I think it points to some, some bigger issues. So this is an article that has to do with the programming language scratch. This is from TechCrunch on September 7th, 
China bans Scratch, MIT's programming language for kids. And it reports that um, there's a, now now there have been over 60 million children around the world using Scratch. And um, here in October, in August, on August 20th, uh, a Scratch user flagged the ban um, and the website was 100 percent blocked, I guess, by by August 20th. So uh, about. Five percent, five between five and six percent, or three million of Scratch's red, registered users have been based in China. Um, there are a lot of uh, obviously other programming projects and and ways that students can learn coding. But uh, the article that reported on this uh, from um, I'm trying to see where that original it was that okay. So this is a China-based news um, article. Uh, was saying that projects on Scratch contain a great deal of quote humiliating, fake, and libelous content about China, including and you can see this is a capital sin, placing Hong Kong, Macau, and Taiwan in a drop-down list of countries. So this was from a state-run uh, Chinese news outlet. Um, and that it also talked about you know, any service distributing information in China must comply with local regulations. Basically, you know, this is this is just so fascinating as far as the global Internet. Um, it goes further because there are scratch projects that folks do about Hong Kong protests about. And I'm I'm cognizant now as I say these things that my my words are being transcribed into Facebook um, and maybe elsewhere. But anyway, yes, uh, we'll still say the words Hong Kong and protest. Hopefully I'll get to travel back there some days, even though I'm, I'm saying this. But, you know, China is and has for for years, but is arguably doing this even more so, you know, trying to get, you know, a a real thumb on the sharing of information. And Scratch is a very empowering community. There are ways that you can flag, you know, inappropriate projects. But, you know, the MIT curators, to my knowledge, are not considering a project about democracy in Hong Kong, you know, as being inappropriate, but Chinese censors certainly are. So that is really, really a huge, huge thing. And a segue I'll make to another article that I also put under the China headline. I mean, there's, I'll, I'll do two of them, then, then throw it to you, Dr. Neifer. Uh, this is Ars Technica. China plans new data policy in response to uh, Trump's admins bullying. And this has to do with TikTok. And, you know, we're, we've been talking about 5G and we've talked on the show about, um, you know, the, the, the banning of different um, Russian security software like Kaspersky and then the concern over over China. I think we had an article last week about stopping um, a fiber cable that was going to be going into Hong Kong. And <laughs> spy agencies are concerned that, uh, you know, other spy agencies in other countries are going to be opening mail and, and, you know, getting information and being able to have access to it. And so we see this conflict between the United States and China not only happening in, you know, the telecommunications world with Huawei, um, you know, personal phones and, and gear being banned here in the United States, but also now it's really West versus China or the United States versus China bring, trying to bring along, you know, more countries like the United Kingdom and, and other traditional allies to say, we want you all to make a rule that you will not put in Chinese infrastructure. And so the concern I have, you know, is, and, and maybe this is just the, the course of history here, is that we're going to be having fracturing of the internet, different, you know, internets that people are going to have access to. And that really strikes at the heart of one of the best things about the internet, which is that it's global in nature. And so the last article I put into this series um, is actually a podcast I listened to. And this podcast is rebranding. It used to be um, the War College podcast. Uh, they're rebranding as Angry Planet. Um, but it's been a very, very good podcast um, to listen to political commentary, especially as it regards not just uh, kinetic warfare, but information warfare and the ways in which, you know, cyber is a huge, huge uh, element of conflict between countries to include China and the United States. And so this podcast uh, is an interview um, actually with uh, uh, an official um, of the of the government. And so 
of the U.S. government. Um, and he's got a book called The Return of the Great Power Rivalry, Democracy versus Autocracy from the Ancient World to the U.S. and China. His name is Matthew Kronig. But he made the point, to, and I listened to this tonight, and again, this, this needs to go through a political filter, so I'm, I'm cognizant of that. But this, this uh, official's perspective is that we're really at an inflection point with the relations between China and the United States. And maybe this is oversimplifying things a little bit, but it kind of resonated with me. His point was we have sort of assumed that, you know, governments are going, as they embrace uh, capitalism and free markets, are going to follow the United States in terms of democracy and rights. And, you know, that they're just going to sort of follow that Francis Fukuyama uh, liberal democracy, you know, dream. And what we've seen is that China's not doing that. And, you know, they are in the midst of, depending upon how you define terms, uh, neither of these are good terms. Ethnic cleansing in the in for the weaker mi uh, Muslim minority in Western China, or cultural genocide and outright genocide. And so, anyway, this I, I think that a lot of people have really believed with the end of the Cold War, this time of collaboration, this time of you know the internet and bringing us all together, um, that this kind of superpower conflict is a thing of the past. And what this podcast suggests and what a lot of these articles suggest is we're continuing to see this conflict, not only in the economic sphere in terms of trade, but we're seeing it in the telecommunications arenas. And as we see these kinds of infrastructure build outs happening and, you know, nations literally saying, we are not going to allow you to sell your devices and we're not going to let, you know, our friends buy your devices for our internet. This has a lot of big implications. So the, the, the last little segue back to the Scratch article is, you know, can China innovate equally to the United States when you don't have access to Google Scholar, which evidently you don't in China, when you are very limited in your access to information, information and ideas, you know, to what degree are you going to be able to innovate and will the West's openness, you know, ultimately triumph or, you know, is China going to, you know, be able to to take the kinds of innovations that they want and then use those for their um, very state controlled authoritarian system. So that's a ton of ideas to, to chuck at you. Uh, has your thinking about China and the United States been influenced much in the in the past few months as we've looked at these kinds of articles, Jason? And do you feel like um, do you feel like we're at an inflection point? There's that's just a, there's a good debater political question. <laughs> Chinese U.S. policy. Yeah, absolutely. And and part of this is is that I, I guess the the promise of the internet in general was kind of a democratization of Earth, right? Like if everyone had free ability to communicate, if everyone had free access to information, it would have a stunning result. And, and to be clear, it has had a stunning result. Some of it positive, some of it not so. But in a case where we're trying to create a separate internet. Uh, and, and this is not the only place where this is happening. There is separate internet in, uh, many of the more authoritarian countries in the Middle East. There is an attempt at a separate internet in Russia. There's an attempt at a separate internet in, in China. Um, there is an ex a separate internet in North Korea that, that's not particularly accessible, uh, 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 in, it really in, in the country, but also outside the country as well. That all has implications in, diminishing the power of kind of a democratization that the internet can bring. Um, but I guess part of this is, is that the hopeful person in me says that if we can all connect with one another, that does provide, um, that provides opportunities to, to change each other's minds and, and to, to grow. And I guess the idealist in me is just sad by that notion. There might be inside and outside from that prospect. Now that said, like I, I did, I did think it was reactionary when the Trump administration, uh, uh, made rules against Chinese owned firms, uh, working on things like 5G rollout, right? But then when other countries like Great Britain, you know, also took suit, they tend to be much less reactionary in the way they approach things. Uh, there, I, I think there's probably something there, right? That there could be a, a legitimate fear in regards to, uh, the ability of something other than 
commerce or capitalism taking place here. And that is, is indeed scary. But the other thing that, that it also highlights is that who else is going to make that, that stuff, right? I mean, the part of the problem with, you know, kind of deglobalizing based on this, these geopolitical pieces as opposed to, you know, the, the markets that are driving them is that the only way in my mind that it makes sense that we make those strong decisions that 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 really minimize Chinese ability to do things like provide us hardware, we have to have the ability in the United States to make that ourselves. And, you know, to be honest, uh, you know, jobs didn't get sucked out of the United States because that was natural. It happened because companies make choices to do so, right, to go and take their business overseas. Um, famously, uh, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, I think it was with President Obama had a conversation uh, before uh, he passed away, uh, you know, trying to talk about, you know, what, you know, what can we do to bring some of these American jobs back? And he famously said those jobs are gone. Uh, there, there's no way you're getting those back. And I do think Tim Cook, and in fact, I think it was under Tim Cook's leadership that they started making the, the trash can Mac Pro in Texas. That didn't last, right? <laughs> A and big what? seller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They sold, what, eight of those? And, um, you know, that, that certainly... Um, uh, uh, proves that it's difficult to bring that manufacturing back. But I mean, it, it strikes so, I mean, these, these conversations have so many far reaching effects um, uh, on the world that, that it's, it, it, it kind of boggles the mind. Um, if the 15th come and goes and TikTok is banned in the United States, that seems like just really a, a, a terrible thing. And, I, not for me. I don't really use TikTok, but a lot of folks do here. So uh, I need to make a correction. Matthew Krennig was former Department of Defense. He's not a current official. He's a professor at Georgetown and an author uh, and many other things on his on his uh, resume. <clears throat> One of the things that he says in terms of the debates, which we can watch here in upcoming weeks, is how Biden versus Trump talk about China and you know, he is really he he's making this point. And I don't know that I had heard this articulated so clearly that we are at a, a turning point in our relations. And it occurs to me that, you know, this has to do with the story that we tell ourselves about a, about another country, about foreign relations and, you know, the ways in which we perceive that country. And so it will be interesting to see how the candidates do talk about um about China, I I heard of, or I guess I read a real troubling article this week um, about a woman born in China who, with her mother, you know, immigrated here, and uh, she's a journalist for the New Yorker. It's a fantastic article, but you know, the cost of people saying things like the China virus and bringing racism into the coronavirus, boy, that has a huge toll. And so, um, you know, I certainly want to see our our nations collaborate and want to see see us <laughs> grapple with these issues that we have. We were talking before the show. I mean, the, the fires that we have, the hurricanes that we have, you know, the global pandemic that we have, all, all of these different issues, right? We've got, we've got really serious global issues as well as local issues that face us. And we need to be collaborating around those things and trying to work to solve them. So, you know, the idea of a new Cold War is not something that I, uh, you know, think sounds great, but um, you know, authoritarianism is on the rise and we've uh, seen the ways in which social media can be weaponized and disinformation utilized. And so it's going to be uh, interesting to see, uh, you know, it's not, that's just not the, not a great word, but I'm using it in lieu of, uh, of better alternatives. You know, what happens in November with our election here in the United States and then where these kinds of things go, because the world that, and, and this fits into what we talk about in school and education, you know, the world that we're moving into, um, has been, and I think was going to continue to be more highly connected than ever, but the competition that we have and the lines where, you know, we're drawing, um, you know, friends and, and you said like sort of inside and outside, um, it's, uh, it, it, the, the China of today is not the not the China that you necessarily studied in school, you know, if that was 30 or 40 years ago, depending on on, on, on how old you are. And um, these things we, we hear these headlines, but connecting the dots in terms of what it means and and where we're going as a nation, it's going to 
it's it's really big right and and what i'll say is this i think that we need to continue back to scratch we need to continue to focus on our strengths and one of the most important strengths that we bring to cultural conversations is the ways in which we support in the west and the united states an open exchange of ideas um innovation that allows us to be creative and build on you know the ideas of others and the scratch community specifically i'm i'm getting to use scratch with my fifth grade Spanish kids this year, um, and I haven't started units that I'll I'll do with my computer uh, students with it as well. But it is so wonderful to see that kind of collaboration and that kind of dynamism. And there are some big differences between the approaches that we have, not only politically between our nations, but the ways that that manifests itself in the classroom and in school. So I would say for teachers out there, you know, share with your kids. Hey guys, scratch has been blocked in China. And my kids were like, what, why is that? We, when we talked about it, you know, I don't know for sure, but here's the ideas of why I think it might be. And it's, those are foreign concepts to them, but saying, yeah, guys, you know, we, you have an opportunity to, to criticize your government and talk about freedom in Hong Kong. And if you were to do that and you lived in China, you could face some really serious consequences. So those are good things to talk about. All right, sir. We've got about 10 minutes left. Um, do you want to hit that T-Mobile article? Because that, that was a pretty exciting one. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I think it, it's a little mixed. So this was announced uh, – well, there's been a, a couple announcements about this, but this is from September 4th, so last Friday. Uh, T-Mobile announces its plan to give 10 million students – across the United States broadband at home. And this was part of their agreement to merge with Sprint. And um, and actually, it, it wasn't even part of their agreement. It was one of the things they were pitching. The the former CEO of, of T-Mobile uh, w- talked about one of the great advantages that, that the United States would get out of allowing T-Mobile and Sprint to merge was that they would do innovative things like give 10 million uh, students access to free, or low-income students across the United States access to free internet. So now to be clear, what free internet that means is um, uh, it's wireless internet. So you get a mobile hotspot, right? Although I would guess that there probably also is a way to get, they have new hardware available where um, you can get a, a kind of a little Wi-Fi antenna for your house that talks to cell towers to do home internet that way. It's very popular in Europe to do it that way. It's not nearly as popular in the United States, but um, apparently school administrators can go and as part of Project 10 Million, you as a student can sign up uh, if you are from a low-income family. School administrators can sign up by providing zip codes. Um, and uh, parents can also organize this for schools. And the idea is is to get out these hotspots to kids that may need them. Now, there's a couple caveats here that uh, that I think is pretty important. Uh, one of them is that it is limited to... Um, uh, to 100 gigabytes of data in a single year. And that is not very much data. Uh, it, it ends up being less than 10 uh, gigabytes a month. And I'm not just talking about it's not enough data for, you know, a couple of geeky households like the Friar and the Knife for James household, right? I'm talking about that it, for kids, right? Like if they are media savvy kids, if they're watching YouTube kids, if they're watching TikTok kids, that uh, they're going to get through a hundred gigs pretty quick, but you can pay a really cheap rate, uh, $12 monthly to get that to a hundred gigs each month, which would be pretty reasonable for a, a, a small family that was even pretty media savvy. So Wes, uh, any thoughts about this as a you know potential solution to what I consider to be an important and growing problem of, of equity and access? I mean, it's smart on T-Mobile's standpoint, right? You can see in that fine print where they're looking at, you know, folks utilizing them on uh, an ongoing basis for their internet and their connectivity. Um, ultimately, I think that schools are not going to need to, we, we can't just wait for companies to be generous and offer these kind of things. And is that going to qualify? I mean, we're going to have to, we're going to have to bridge these gaps in our communities, uh, working with ISPs, getting broadband and, and getting multiple options for that. I mean, 5G and the promise of that is on the horizon. That's going to, it's going to be crazy fast, but I think it's a, it's a good thing. Um, filtering is important. You know, I'd be interested to know, are they going to be providing some filtering options? And it's 
one of those things that we've just got to be, you know, talking with students about. And, and because of E-rate, you know, schools have uh, an obligation to provide some kind of filtering. So that's going to be an issue. And I don't think that's, you know, mentioned in the article. I'm sure that they'll have, you know, some checkboxes that they can they can turn on to, to have uh, a level of filtering that's out there. But, you know, there's a lot of sides to this. And the, the digital divide and our need to address this and the fact that, you know, we're in this for the long haul, the, the pandemic is not something that's just, you know, here, uh, here in 2020, and it's going to be gone. I think it's going to be here for a while. And the issues, like we've talked about, that are these these big gaps in connectivity and resources and and access um, that that our schools have, we we need to address. So good for T-Mobile to do this, but I don't think this is going to, you know, address the issue for everyone everywhere. And there's a lot of important work that not only school leaders need to do, but community leaders need to do working in partnership with business to see that we address the digital divide everywhere, not just in a few places. Great. Okay. Is there anything else we need to hit this week, Wes, before we uh, go to the geeks of the week? Yeah, let me do one that was kind of wild. I put this under media literacy, uh, <laughs> and I should have probably Googled this source because I'm, I'm sure we've all heard of the website Rest of World from August 31st. Um, the headline is, One Village's Response to Disinformation, Burn Internet Towers and Take Hostages. This is a story from Peru, and uh, the, the subtitle here is that eight engineers were taking hostage in a remote Peruvian village after 5G conspiracy theories combined with a long-standing mistrust of outsiders. And so this was in June of 2020, and these these engineers went to this remote area in Peru. And uh, if you have not heard, and we're actually in the midst um, of a conspiracy theory unit with my sixth graders right now. Uh, there's a number of, you know, conspiracy theories out there about 5G and there've been, you know, pictures and shared on social media of, of angry people confronting, you know, workers, you know, putting wires up telephone poles and on towers and things like that. And so those kinds of conspiracy theories, they say, you know, partnered with the coronavirus and, and, um, uh, the, the isolation that, that that comes there and distrust of foreigners, you know, led to this hostage situation, which is which was pretty crazy. Um, but disinformation played a big role in it, and so that's why I put that under the the uh, headline of media literacy. So uh, I I do not think we're going to resolve all of those disinformation challenges by uh, the election that we're going to be having here in in a little bit. And there's different ways that this is going to manifest itself, and this is one of the weirder ones that, that I had, had heard about. So, Well, I, I, I can't top that. So I think it's time to go to Geeks of the Week. Uh, Wes, what would you like to share with us this week? Okay. So um, I made a five-minute video yesterday uh, called Change Your Google Password. We had one of our students with their account compromised on Friday, and um, we are in the process of working with our students to make sure that they all are using secure passwords. And so this is just a short little video that shows the steps of how, you know, students can go in and this is for anybody with a Google account and be able to change your password. Um, we don't require and actually even allow um, our kids at this point, as far as two-step verification, we do that for all of our faculty and staff, but it's just super important that we help educate not only kids, but also their parents about passwords and the fact that we want unique passwords and, you know, the longer that password is, the better, but it needs to be something that is not easily guessable and that you haven't used anywhere else. And um, I mentioned in that video, the website have have you been pwned, which is a Microsoft white hat hacker maintained website of data breaches. And you just, no, not a, not a password, but just put in an email and it shows you all the data breaches that that email address has been involved in, whether or not the passwords were compromised and whether other information has been compromised before. And that just means it's on the dark web. And if you're using that same password again, guess what? Somebody, you know, probably has it and they, they very well could be using it to try to gain access to your account. So as some of you know, if you're a longtime listener, Dr. Neifer is the absolute uh, model uh, geek for changing passwords and utilizing the tools that are available. I'm not setting them up for a hack, guys. I'm really yeah, not. Yeah, I was going to say. But Jason <laughs> oh, is the no. only person that I know, pers- you know, who has taken this seriously. And it's, and it's something that I've done some of, but I haven't completed. You can use the built-in password manager in Google Chrome. You can use, you know, LastPass, OnePassword. They call it Watchtower, different things. But it will now cross 
compare your passwords to these databases of compromised passwords. It'll tell you which passwords are repeated. And those are things that we all need to do. So we're working with our students, but also hoping they will talk to their parents about those things as well. What yep. do you have for us, Dr. Neifer, for your Geek of the Week? Well, um, I, I thought this article was was actually pretty interesting and had some interesting ideas for tools that I might, uh, too much I took I might take a look at later. But for those of you that are knee-deep in whether you're supporting distance learning or your remote teaching or you're just using a lot more tech because of the extraordinary uh, times that we live in, a fast company has suggestions of what to do if you are over-tabbed in your browsers. Uh, one of my favorite suggestions is to turn a website into an app, which works on Macs, uh, uh, PCs, and, and Chromebooks. I do that with a couple of, of, of apps. For example, the Emoji Dictionary that I like to go to is actually an installed web app on my computer and teaches you how to do that, whether it's meant to be a web app or not. And there were two new tools there that were kind of organization tower tools. They cost money, which I'm not really wild about because it doesn't make any sense to me. Like I get people need to have an economic model to develop, but paying $6 a month to have a plugin essentially for Chrome that changes the way you do tabs uh, is a little weird to me, but it was an interesting enough article that I wanted to share it. So Fast Company from August 26th, stop opening so many browser tabs and use these three slick tools instead. And today, uh, we did a practice remote learning with my, one of my fifth grade classes on their Chromebooks. And one of the things we were doing is closing out all the tabs we could. Um, it is a, <laughs> I don't know what the right, it, it's a pandemic. It's, it's a big, <laughs> it's a big issue that a lot of people have. And when you, you know, happen to peer over somebody's shoulder or help them with their computer and you're like, how many tabs do you have? I mean, literally, I've seen teachers that have like over 50 tabs <laughs> open. It's like, do you use any kind of tab, you know, management tool? Um, so, yes, good, good advice there. Tab, okay. tab, tab addiction, I think. Is it is it in the the DSM guide? It, is that, it is could be, and I know a couple of folks, ones? and I know a couple of folks that that absolutely are like that. So. All right. Well, we are at the top of the hour. Um, we've had a few different live viewers. If you happen to still be with us live and want to type into the chat to let us know where you are, uh, we're always interested to know and appreciate your live attendance. Um, you can find all of the links that we did not talk about, as well as those that we did um, on our website, edtechsr.com slash links. But on our main edtechsr website, that's where you will find our um, uh, small audio versions of these shows as well as video versions. And you can always subscribe to us on YouTube and on Twitter. So Dr. Neifer, when you are not here on Wednesday nights, where can people continue to glean your wisdom and technology tips? I am on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncce.org. Awesome. And I am W. Fryer on Twitter. I am continuing to share my curriculum on mdtech.cassidy.org. And then for media literacy, I uh, set up a little uh, little Google site this summer off of uh, my main westfryer.com site, which is just medialiteracy.westfryer.com. So continuing to work on media literacy and believe that it is an important skill of the present and the future that we all need to work on. So thank you guys for tuning in and we will see you next week until next time. Stay savvy, stay safe and stay warm up there. Dr. Neifer, I guess uh, you may need a coat tomorrow morning. Absolutely. Good night.